I'm Audrey Assad. And I'm Tony Caldwell. Welcome to Archetypical. What do Jesus, Bob Dylan, and Medusa have to teach us about who we are? Here at Archetypical, we aim to find out. We explore our consciousness and the human story through the psychology and art of archetypal figures and themes. Finding ourselves in the strangest of places. archetypes in Christianity today. I wonder if there will be people listening to this who are not familiar with what we're talking about in the first place. I feel like most people who search this out would, would know, but if it's you and you're listening and you're like, what is an archetype and where does it, where does this concept come from? Um, why are we talking about it? What does it mean? Maybe we could break that open a little bit in our first episode. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so Carl Jung talked about archetypes as the organs of our psyche. So if you think about how the organs work in our bodies, he, he considered the archetypes organs of our psyches in ways that we're able to, to access inner experience and to really connect our current experiences with uh, experiences that have happened across time and place throughout human history. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. The organs of our experience. And you are a psychologist in the Jungian tradition, would you say? Mm-hmm. Um, do you use the archetypes as devices like in your work very often? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about that and how it kind of comes into play for you as a person who works in mental health and counseling. Right. So we, we all typically embody an archetype at any given time, you know, whether we're in a victim role or survivor role or in a part of our hero's journey. Um, but then we also uh, experience archetypes in our dreams. So mm-hmm. I deal with archetypes a lot in, in dream work. Okay. Yeah. So where maybe um, a female um, character that shows up in a dream may embody a mother archetype mm-hmm. uh, or a queen mm-hmm. archetype. Mm-hmm. And those would be aspects of ourselves that we can work with mm-hmm. uh, because they've shown up in symbolic form. And would you say, I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'm not positive. Like, would you say that while we are sort of embodying different archetype roles in our own stories from day to day or moment to moment, we are also projecting those archetypes out at other people in our story? Um, is that something that we're usually doing you know, I know the victim perpetrator rescuer triangle is something that, you know, gets discussed a lot in therapy or different um, types of therapy. But even outside of that, you know, father or trickster, or these different, you know, we look at our friends, we look at our family, are we without realizing it even right. might be unawares kind of um, projecting archetypes onto others and interacting with the archetypes themselves in our relationships? Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's, there's what's called the anima or the animus, and it's where we find sort of the opposite gendered expression of ourselves. So the part of us that didn't get to come alive because of our socialization as either male or female. Mm. And so those might show up uh, in our dreams, but also be projected onto another person mm-hmm. so that we can then see that aspect of ourselves and reclaim it. Mm. You know? Ideally, that's what we would do. But I feel like a lot of times that's not what we do. We, no. we don't actually start knitting them together. It's more like we, we project the archetypes out into this world and then 
have, you know, we're at odds with different ones or we cling to certain ones. And I love the work of knitting things together, weaving together archetypes or religion with, you know, the places where I've landed now and going like, how can I bring it all into one story? Um, I actually believe that that is when we talk about the Christ figure, I've Mm. come to a place where I think the Christ, the, um, the universal role is one who makes all our stories into one story and integration of all things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, I feel like that's kind of what we're hoping to do here is, you know, for some of us who have either left religion or who are occupying the fringes of it now, um, for different reasons, whatever that might be, there are so many reasons that might be. Um, I've heard so many stories from y'all, you know, at different, um, events that I've sort of started doing in the progressive space or the ex-religious space. And, um, I know for me, what has been really healing is actually finding a way to integrate religion and my religious upbringing into my current story versus rejecting and kind of reframing everything. I actually now know I can't really do that. Like I can't really totally reframe things from what I was given as a child because it's just there in my DNA and my tissue and my past. And the best I can hope to do is expand and include what is it that they say? Is it, is it Carl Jung who says accept all and reject none? I, and so that's kind of been my MO. Yeah. And so this is, I think for me, like my, my attempt or in an organized fashion of at doing that and trying to integrate religion into my life. Yeah. Yeah. And I really think that's, that's at the heart of what we're doing here mm-hmm. is, is integrating. Yeah. Um, the notion of deconstruction without some kind of reconstruction is just really an illusion because our symbol systems are still there. Right. Working on us if we're not working with them. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that. Carl Jung says, um, if you don't make the unconscious conscious, it will run your life and you'll call it fate. I think I'm butchering mm-hmm. the quote, but yes, we often run from the things that wound us and then they, they become the marionette operator, you know, um, in the background because we haven't integrated them. Yeah. So, uh, for anyone listening who, has never had a wounding experience with religion. I, I hope that this is still helpful to you in some way as you seek to explore it for yourself. But for, I think, the vast majority of people who are watching or listening, they will probably have come from a place where religion is complicated or potentially traumatic um, part of their life. And this, I hope, will be one stream of healing um, potential to really kind of get in touch with the humanity of all of it. Um, so that's why we're here. Yeah. Yeah, welcome. Reclamation Mm. work, for sure. Mm. Yeah. I love it. All right, well, why don't you feel free to take the charge here? I mean, I've got so many things I could ask and think about, but I feel like you are the expert, so (laughs) I want you to lead us off. So I thought we'd start with with the Christ archetype, and the Christ being an energy more than a person, but embodied within a person. So the Christ being the title, Jesus Mm -hmm. the Christ, so not his last name, Mm -hmm. but a title that carries a specific meaning, meaning that he was the carrier of the Christ energy. Mm -hmm. I can hear, I can hear my relatives going, what new age pagan occult language are you speaking? (laughs) Um, Those of you who have listened to or read, you know, or encountered Richard Rohr's The Universal Christ will be very familiar with this idea that the Christ is actually a title, a role in the universe, um, in the web of like the universe's different 
um, how would I put it? Like energies, I guess. Um, I feel like people are scared of the word energy because it sounds so foreign, but I think, I think all it means and what it means to me is kind of like, um, a force or, you know, to borrow a Star Wars term, which we are going to talk about, um, at some point here, but a force or a, like a, a silent role, um, a personified force is sort mm-hmm. of how I would like yeah. think about it. A presence. Yeah. Embodied. Presence. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus embodied Christ energy in a way that was very specific and localized, mm-hmm. but that, that energy actually exists around us everywhere. And in, indeed, I think in us. Um, and so that's kind of what that concept means, um, to me anyway. Yeah. And for me, that doesn't bring any less reverence to Christ or diminish Christ or Jesus in any way. To right. me, it really expands what um, what a relationship with Jesus or the Christ energy might look like mm-hmm. and how it might unfold in real time in our lives. Yes, I love that. Um, so as we think about Christ as an energy and as an archetype, um, I'm curious as to like where we can start with that, you know, have there been Christ figures kind of all along in our stories? Um, I know that actually, interestingly, being raised from Plymouth Brethren, we talked a lot about Christ types Mm. uh, in the Old Testament. So Adam being, you know, Christ being the new Adam, that's a, that's actually an archetypical device there where, you know, even in the Bible, they, there's language for how the two figures were linked in the story and how they mirrored each other and one prefigured the other. Well, so the, actually the archetypal kind of device is very common even in our own religious literature, but I just never got the terminology around it. So I was taught about Christ types. You know, I was taught about Adam and David and all of them being like foreshadowings of the Christ. Um, I think we're expanding that here by saying it's not just someone who was pointing to the Christ, but actually um, playing part of the role of the Christ in the story. So the energy was there and present in that moment, not just like, oh, I'm talking about a future energy. Like that energy was already there. And even like in, um, I think it's in Revelation, it says that Christ was slain before the foundations of the earth, which to me says time is sort of immaterial Mm -hmm. to the story of God and humanity in that way where it's like Jesus has always been or the Christ, as you know, has always been here. Mm-hmm. Um, there has never been a moment where it wasn't here yet. But I'm curious to just like think more about where it showed up before we were here. And, you know, talking about the Bible in 2020, like... Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it invites us to revisit concepts like Alpha and Omega and Omnipresence. Uh, in a new way to think what that might look like in a really beautiful way if we could relax into the Mm. thought that it might be true. That's so interesting to think about relaxing into the idea of omnipresence because I was raised to believe in that, but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I thought that way. Like there were lots of places I didn't believe that God was, you know. Um, Lots of things that were painted as dangerous and evil and dark and scary and 
shadowy places we should not venture. Right. But I, at this point in my life, I'm like, oh, I mean, I'm not saying there's no evil in the world. It's just not, I don't think of it the same way at all as if there are territories where I am not safe or welcome. Right. Because actually what I think that shows is an unwillingness or a fear to encounter my own shadow and to go into places in myself that are sticky or scary or foreign or shameful, you know? Mm-hmm. And so as I sort of integrate my own, with my own shadow side, I'm able to sort of navigate any place or any situation and see God and see evil and see humanity all wrapped up in one, you know? Yeah. And I love taking these stories inward and working with them there because if we don't do shadow work, we just project that onto other people and work Mm -hmm. it out there. So it it just keeps bringing us back to how this this work can be so integrating. Mm. I love it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, You know, the word Christian means little Christ or miniature Christ. So Mm -hmm. I think all this also invites us to re-look at what it might mean to be participating in a larger reality mm. uh, that was here before us and will be here after us, and at least in this embodied form, mm. um, with this particular socialization and you know set of concepts that we're working with that we call our lives, mm. you know, um, and I think there's something really powerful about realizing that these old stories are still happening. But there's not biblical times and then now it's there's no marker mm-hmm. where you know there's there's a marker where a particular set of texts stopped but history was going before then and it's it's been happening since yeah we're always making history it's not it's so living and flexible and kind of yeah we think of things so linearly and that's not, you know, science is even, physics and, and all these kind of other fields are showing us that that's not how things work mm-hmm. in the universe. Like the laws of the universe are actually, um, how, if I think of like, we aren't the center of the universe, but if I think of us that way for a second, you know, our earth, our solar system and expanding out from it, the farther away that you get, time starts working very differently. Mm-hmm. Like that movie um, Interstellar really delved into that in a way that, do you remember that? Did you watch that movie? I didn't. Oh, oof. well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's these astronauts that go on these different missions. They age differently because the places that they're going, time moves faster or slower than it moves on our planet. And so when they would come back, people in their lives would be much older and they would have only aged, let's say, five years. Wow. And so we think of our universal laws as being ubiquitous, but they aren't. Like, So when we think of our own stories and God and heaven and hell and all these kind of like very linear, um, binary type concepts of good and evil and, you know, time and space, I think we miss the opportunity to really engage as deeply as we could with things like the Christ because we're projecting such a framework of like our our very old way of looking at stuff, you know. Um, so anyway, what are my thoughts on time and space, but like heaven and hell all start to get really complicated when you realize that if you even just leave our galaxy or leave our, um, atmosphere, time isn't moving the same Mm -hmm. and future and past don't really mean the same things. So that's really kind of interesting to engage with, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It brings up so many questions and 
you know, I'm also thinking about how how Jesus seemed to be experienced in his time and place, like what mm-hmm. what archetypes were being projected onto him or which ones he uh, sort of mm-hmm. triggered in other people that they didn't know what to do with. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, so, you know, the title Son of God was something that the Caesars of the time used where political rulers were seen as informed mm-hmm. by and connected to God to rule over the people. Sounds incredibly British, actually. They still, <laughs> still yeah. teach that kind of... About the queen, but um, yeah. yes, okay. And so Jesus <clears throat> challenged that when he used the word son of God, he was saying, you know, mm. no, Caesar's not the son of God. Political rulers are not the son of God. Like the kingdom and empire are not the same thing. Wow. You know, I've actually never heard that. That's really new information to me. Like I knew that he, I knew that people of his day were expecting some kind of political savior but I didn't know that the term son of God was actually him kind of reclaiming that term from what it had been adopted to mean. Um, that is so interesting because he did sort of flip his people's idea of what the Messiah would be like by being born in a manger and being um, the daughter, uh, sorry, the son, the son of a um, sort of a woman who had been shamed in her culture for having him before the appropriate time and all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I never knew that son of God was a political term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it brings just this 3D way of looking at him riding in on a donkey. That's so... Instead of a stallion. Interesting. Yeah. It does really expand that for me. I mean, it's like I knew that story, but without that context, it's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, That... You know, and I forget where I'm going to butcher a lot of Bible references, y'all. I'm so sorry. But there's a part somewhere, there's a verse that says that Christ or that Jesus reconciles all things to himself. And only recently did I start really realizing that that could mean integrating the shadow, the self with, you know, with the self. And then also meaning like all the different competing stories about God and humanity and all of our stories about ourselves and other people, when we, we kind of develop these narratives that we're very attached to about who people are to us and who we are, and that Christ, the role of the Christ energy is to actually integrate all those things into one web. And so him reclaiming the title, or integrating the title Son of God into his world, that's really, really cool to think about. That. Yeah. And I think part of the, the disappointment that seemed to be around the fact that he wasn't presenting is this mighty ruler is that he he came to liberate consciousness and hearts and minds and identities and entrapments and allegiances instead Mm. of reinforce those (laughs) things damn it jesus right (laughs) i mean darn it jesus i mean i yes what a challenger in a very quiet way and it's like i think of the enneagram here too where i think the christ energy is like all enneagram numbers and different numbers at different times and even like for our own purposes we have to break things out into segments but when I think about like the higher self consciousness as a more um collective thing or the Christ it's like I think of the Enneagram as like a if you have all the numbers in a circle Mm -hmm. you know I think it actually points to that and I think of Jesus and how at different times he embodied these different Mm -hmm. ways of challenging the norms. It was like to the, to the woman who had five husbands and yet no husbands, you know, 
you know, he, um, he was one way and, and he challenged her in one way and challenged culture in a huge way by engaging with her the way he did. And then he turned tables over in the temple and then he called himself the son of God. And then he didn't talk to Pilate at all or defend himself, you know? So he actually embodied like all, we have all these personality types and like the ways that we are. And he embodied all those things at different points in his own life Mm -hmm. and integrated them into one human experience. Um, It seems to be a pattern for him. Yeah. Which I really love. And we can model our lives after that, right? Yeah. Like integrating things. I think that's part of what's so beautiful about revisiting scripture in this way is that we can actually see, oh, this is, this is, these are ways that I can actually lean into and live into this. And in real time, it's not just thoughts or concepts or being good or like a morality mm. code, but I love that to become, you know, what Paul Tillich referred to as the new being to Yes. You know, where I think he said, I might butcher this, but um, not much is different, but everything has changed. Mm. You know, it really resonates with me and it is, it is the narrow road because it is difficult work. It's difficult to resist the temptation to label ourselves and other people as like good and bad, givers and takers, whatever you want to call it. Like, mm-hmm. It's difficult to resist labeling situations, people, ourselves as one thing. When in reality, nothing is like that, including us. And as much as I don't personally love or recommend Jordan Peterson in general, he does talk a lot about the fact that we, we must, and this is very Jungian. I mean, he didn't come up with this, but... He has, he has tried to deliver this message to culture. It's maybe the only thing personally about what he does that I have enjoyed, which is that it is very important for us to reckon with our own shadow and integrate it. Because if we don't, it will run our lives. We will spend our lives projecting. And instead of projecting, we want to integrate. And Christ was like the ultimate integrator. He didn't project onto anyone, it looks like. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to me that he did. Yeah, and I think the cross is a beautiful um, symbol of what reconciling and integrating looks like in this sense of, you know, duality and extreme literalism is, is literally killing us right mm-hmm. now. But the cross seems to bring together all opposites, mm. you know. Uh, I actually made a list of a few of those that I would love to... Yes, please. ...to... Uh, focus on so Carl Jung talked about holding the tension of the opposites and he actually saw the Christ figure on the cross as nailed in each hand as holding (laughs) all of the opposites you know and also absorbing Mm. all all the shadow and the Mm -hmm. the unclaimed unrepentant stuff in our lives and and so these are some of the things that seem to be opposites but are integrated in the Christ figure and I think mm. holding those for us, if you will, shows us how to hold it for ourselves. Mm. Picking up our own cross, if you will. So <laughs> some of those opposites being humiliation and glory, death and life, good mm. and evil, heaven and earth, God and man, faith and doubt, mm. vocation and pain, held and forsaken, alone and together, honored and tortured, broken mm. and whole, spirit and matter, mm. guilty and innocent, body mm. and soul, 
consciousness and shadow. So anywhere that there's duality, mm. it becomes unity. Oh, that moves me so deeply. I would love to, if I can, share a story that's actually really recent in my life. Um, I had a kind of like a retreat mystical experience recently where I actually started, uh, people are going to think, you know, whatever, I don't know what you're going to think, but welcome to my life. But I started having these encounters with a spider who was speaking to me and she looked really like Shelob like, like if, if any of you have seen Lord of the Rings, it's like this terrifying, huge spider and Frodo gets bound up by her and there's a whole, I think there's so many stories inside that one tiny story, but she was terrifying, you know, and I was looking at her like with these huge eyes of fear and she actually, um, in this kind of comical voice, she said, everybody loves a weaver, but nobody loves a spider. Am I right? You know, and I start laughing and she says, look, in, in more or less, she said, and this is like what you're saying runs right along with this, but she said, Christ was a weaver. I am a weaver. You are a weaver. What we do. And she actually told me about the cross with the two arms. And she mm -hmm. said what he was doing was holding all things in tension and in unity. And that's the hardest thing to do. It is the narrow road. Mm -hmm. And it is what you're called to. And that's Christ's energy. Mm -hmm. And so I had like a mystical experience with a spider of all things, um, which I'll maybe someday elaborate on more because I have more thoughts on why she was the one telling me this, um, which explained, you know, she, she actually, she pointed out, she said, you know how when you have a fight with someone and you walk away from that experience and you're like, oh, they did this and this was their intent and this mm -hmm. was mine and I'm actually, I'm justifying my own things and, you know, or we have shame about what we felt or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like we have all these like different... So we walk away from the experience and they walk away from the experience with two different narratives about what happened. Mm -hmm. And she said, on the cross, and when you pick up your cross, what, what we're doing is taking all those millions and billions of interactions and narratives about the stories and projections onto ourselves and each other and pushing them back in to the integration of all things, mm -hmm. the oneness. But yeah. that's really what Christ was here to show us how to do. Right. And not many people will do it. Yeah. Because it hurts. It's not easy. It is, it's a challenge to our entire... It's, it's our higher self's call, but, but our, our, our earthly existence is full of stories to the contrary yeah. about how to live. Yeah. And our culture is not built on that. Mm -hmm. And so it is the narrow road. I think it's, it is like the rich man trying to enter the kingdom of heaven. The reason that that's an opposite that's shown is because ultimate self-reliance and power are not always compatible with humility and, you know, oneness. Mm -hmm. And so it's a rare story to hear like Charles Feeney, the billionaire, giving away his entire fortune and saving $2 million for himself and his wife to retire on because most people cannot do all things. They don't want to integrate all things together and be part of the oneness. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It requires a, an ego death and an identity death and a sort of psychic death, if you will. And I don't mean like mm -hmm. psychics. Right, I mean right. Or psyche. Mm -hmm. And um, most of us from childhood have some sneaking suspicion that when we suffer, we're also bad. Yes. In some way. And so that's a deterrent. And then a lot of our theological 
overlay that we've experienced uh, through the years also says, don't go there. It's like the old maps that say, here they be dragons. You know, like, <laughs> don't do inner work. Only take it so far. Oh. You know, and, uh, you know, I think Carl Jung is a, is a corrective figure in that he said, you know, that's the best thing that we could do for humanity, for the people we live with, the people we interact with, the people that we try to give and see, receive love mm-hmm. with, is to go in there and do that hard work. Yeah. You know? it, it makes me think of how, you know, I think in the time and place, uh, my New Testament professor said, Jesus would have been known among the people as a faith healer. That would be what all the, mm-hmm. the uproar was about. Wow, this guy heals people. You know, that would be the sensational thing. But the people around him called him rabbi or teacher, mm. you know. And um, I think he's still teaching through those stories. You know, if, if we listen, mm. we take it into, okay, how does this apply in real life? And so it made me think of when Dr. King was inspired by Gandhi mm. to do nonviolent work in America. And Gandhi had been assassinated at that point. But he, he goes and meets with uh, some of Gandhi's relatives. Says, Tell me about how, where all this came from. And they said... From the Bible. <laughs> he learned it from Jesus. And so he, he learned that Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every morning for 27 years. And that was the, the Jesus archetype that he was linked into mm. working through him, even though he was technically a Hindu. That's beautiful. And I know, I know a lot of people. There's like an opening scene of Rob Bell's book. Is it the Love Wins book? where he talks about being at an art gallery. I think I'm, I'm probably butchering this. <laughs> Rob, I know you're listening. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I think there's a scene where he's at an art gallery or, an, or like some kind of a, something like that. And there's a picture of Gandhi and it was like a peacemaking art exhibit or something. And someone wrote a sticky note and wrote it and said, Gandhi's in hell. Mm. And it was like one of his awakening moments where he was like, how is that possible that someone believes this? But according to my own theology, that's probably true. And I know that a lot of Christians have a problem with Mother Teresa because she said that she encouraged every Hindu to be a better Hindu and every Muslim to be a better Muslim. Mm -hmm. And she didn't believe in evangelization, quote unquote, as a conversion process or trying to get people from one side to the other or one story to the other to make that leap ideologically. Mm -hmm. And... It seems like there are some religious leaders in our different faiths that have, have understood that the Christ is omnipresent. And that's actually true. And, and not only that, but he, it is not ultimately concentrated in any one place, even Christianity, mm-hmm. because people within Christianity are just as human as people everywhere else and have turned it in various multiple ways into things that it is not Mm -hmm. that he never meant it to be, or even if he did mean it to be in the sense that, you know, he knew that it would all segment um, and fragment the way it has. It isn't the ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. Our small corner of the world Mm -hmm. is not where the concentration of God lives. If it was concentrated and localized anywhere, I guess we could say in the life of Jesus, it was, um, Mm -hmm but it's not concentrated in ultimate way in our corner of the story. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be. Yeah. Uh, but people live their lives as though it is. I used to. And when you get that hyperlogical, meaning you accept certain givens and then you carry them out to their ultimate logical end, you become the Westboro Baptists because you have no other choice. 
Most people actually can't reconcile the dissonances with their um, literalism. So they, so they, they live some, some version of literalism, but they can't go all the way because if they did, they'd have to be right. at a funeral shouting slurs. Right. You know, it's, I think in our higher selves, we know that mm-hmm. some of these dissonances are not tenable, but right. we, we kind of are able to figure out a way to relieve our psyches. Right. Yeah. I love all of that. When, when we don't do that work, we end up projecting on to God or Jesus or the archetypes, if you will. Um, and then embodying that. So if we believe that there's a, a God who loves us if we're good, but really wants to torture us indefinitely, if we are too disappointing or too unruly, then we're going to be okay with the death penalty and really okay with mm-hmm. violence if it's not against our side, whatever that totally. side may be. Which I don't know if you read the, in the news this week that the Catholic Church finally came out with an official, um, what would you call it, like a, the death penalty is no longer viewed as permissible in any case, according mm-hmm. to Catholic theology, which it's been an evolving thing. Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II both also believed and said that publicly, but the church issued a document this week that said, like, our doctrine has officially closed the door, which I'm, I know some people will be like, too little, too late, but I want to celebrate that it happened, that there are proofs of evolving consciousness within mm-hmm. our religions that are so old and um, that we're closing the door on things like that because mm-hmm. we know better now. Yeah. I love that. I think it's really yeah. beautiful. You know, it also, that makes me think of, you know, the, the idea of, of the lowercase self or our socialized self and then the capital S self, which would be the child of God self, mm. if you will, the, the, the innate, who were you before you were socialized, whatever that is, mm. that self. From the in-between, <laughs> Yeah, how if you're a reincarnationalist. <laughs> yeah. How will we ever fully know? But, uh, mm. but you know, Christ or Jesus as an archetype of the self, the capital S self, the full grown human who is um, getting his identity vertically, not horizontally, you know? So not, mm-hmm. not the answer Jesus would give to who are you wouldn't reflect who raised him or who his family was, mm. or who his ancestors were, or what social class he was in, or what his occupation was. You know, it was, it was the higher mm-hmm. self. And so I know it's, it's sad to me that at some point people go, oh gosh, you're crossing over into some kind of heresy or whatever. I'm not trying to claim equality with Jesus anyway. I'm saying, but if he were, if he's indeed a teacher, mm-hmm. and he's modeling, mm-hmm. and if he's modeling how to step yes. into that child of God identity and yes. live it out, how to behave or or you know behave just sounds so behavioral right but how to how to be Mm -hmm. how to be in the world you know and we do catch echoes of that even in evangelicalism because you know there's like songs that take hold let's say on a cultural level especially now that worship music is a more commercialized thing that's available more widely so the church like around the world will sing a like one song a lot and so there are these kind of giant songs mm-hmm. and I've really started studying them to, to wonder like why are these ideas catching hold globally in this kind of zeitgeist kind of way what does that mean about our culture I'm really curious about that so I will often like really dive into the the ideas that these songs put forward mm-hmm. and there's one that came out a few years back called Child of God 
Um, or is that what it's called? Or if it's, is it called no longer slaves? Yeah. That's what it called. Yeah. So I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And then there was a few years back, there was good, good father that mm-hmm. came out. And I remember I actually back in the days when I used to do this, I was at um, the International House of Prayer conference in Kansas City, which they do over New Year's weekend every year, except I don't know if they're doing it this year, but because there's like 25,000 people there. And they fast and they pray for Jesus to return. I never participated in the fast because by the time I got to IHOP, I was already kind of like on my way out of that culture, Mm. Uh, the eschatological focused Christian revelation literalism like I just had already begun to leave that behind but through one circumstance or another I found myself in that environment and was kind of exploring it you know and anyway I'm at this conference one year and I lead the song good good father and I watch the entire room the alchemy of leading worship is fascinating you with your voice and you know the resonance of the instruments like start a familiar melody people catch on to what it is and their mood and their body posture changes. Mm-hmm. Around the room, people looked upward and tears start streaming down. And I was like, what father wound is this song healing? Like I can get into all the complication behind all the theology and whatever all day long. And I will do that maybe at another time or another podcast. But, but Good Good Father, written by two guys, you know, who have human stories and father wounds. And I know some of those stories cause I know those guys, but it started healing a father wound in the people who were singing the song. And it says, uh, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. It started, it's a corrective. It's not a perfect correction of our stories, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't take us all the way to Christ consciousness necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's a corrective story because we, our identities, as you said, are often mm-hmm. so tied to our localized, difficult human experiences and, and, and environments. And that story started correcting it for mm-hmm. people. And I'm like, that, I can't deny the goodness of that. Even if I don't identify with all the theology anymore, I'm glad that song came out and started correcting that story for so many people. Mm-hmm. That's an ultimate good, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. If we, especially if we take that and spread that instead of an ideology. Right. Per se. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is hard because our songs do get tied up with ideology so much and the groups that put them out have all their ideologies. And so you get like Bethel... Not to call you out, but I'm kind of doing it. But <laughs> Bethel, you know, putting out all these songs that, yes, I could argue have corrective stories inside them. And then they also have people at their church who are running for Congress on very, very hyper-conservative platforms and mm-hmm. supporting Trump publicly. And so you get this complicated mix of things going on that it's hard to make peace with. But even that I feel called to integrate. I'm like, all of that complexity is part of this for me. Yeah. Be it like Bethel or Westboro Baptist or... Yeah. Hinduism. I'm like, how do I hold it all? Yeah. I gotta. I just don't. I feel called to nothing less than that. I know yeah. you do too. Yeah. You know. So I know a lot of liberals and a lot of conservatives who think that I'm a nutcase, but it's like, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, that reminds me of you know the scene where the family of Jesus shows up and they're like, this guy's lost his mind. He's crazy. And he's like, who's really my family? You know, who's really my mom? Who's really my brother yeah it's a good question to keep asking ourselves yeah as we evolve past our old stories 
how do we take what's good and keep it and keep seeing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And yes, like there's a lot to examine between Christianity and oppression and the, the different political entanglements that have happened. And I want to help to untangle those things while still integrating everything into one, you know, yeah. it's def- it, that's hard to do. It's not easy. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, this figure that calls us to fully grow up. And I love how Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. Jesus never saved anyone from the wilderness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, Damn it, Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, Jesus. Yeah. And Uh, and who, you know, had betrayers and true friends and fake friends and friends that were on the fence and, you know, depending on the setting, were loyal or not. Um, mm. um, Who was persecuted by, you know the merger of politics and religion, mm. you know? So, mm. the, and I think that still happens on a daily basis, mm-hmm. you know? But mm-hmm. in, in that particular moment, in that particular time and place, the way that religion and politics came together to attempt to kill Christ <laughs> is maybe that was a, a precise moment that that was happening. Yes. But that's never stopped happening. No, since. no. And if anything, we can see since. the story reflected in our current day and go, oh, we're mm-hmm. still looping yeah. around the same shit. It's the, the, the way forward, the, the narrow road is to stop this loop. And the only way to do that is to do what Jesus did. But even the people among us who are passionate about ending oppression, and I'm counting myself here, are often not able to do this mm-hmm. because it's too pain, it's too counterintuitive in a way, or counter, maybe not counterintuitive, but um, do you know what I'm trying to say though? Yeah. It's, it's, it's unjust in a way. It flips, I mean, it is unjust that Martin Luther King had to be nonviolent or felt that he had to be. And, you know, not everybody adopted that approach. Malcolm X did it, and I think there's a validity to that. And mm-hmm. I read a lot of Malcolm X, and I, I validate that perspective. It all belongs. So that's the weird thing. It's yeah. like everything belongs in some strange way. Um, but, but living that way is complicated and difficult and a challenge to our psyches, for sure. But I wanted to return to Judas. You mentioned, you know, having Jesus having friends that betrayed him or different, you know, false friends and all that kind of thing. Um, I love this, I don't, you know, I don't love the story of Judas, but in a way I I have an affinity for it because I really, I think that's a perfect example of scapegoating in our Mm -hmm. culture where we we scapegoat Judas as if he was this horrible, terrible, you know, person. But if we take the invitation Mm -hmm. of what we're talking about, we get to ask ourselves, how do I do that? How am I that person? Or how do I play that role in small and large ways Mm -hmm. for myself and like with other people? How do I sell out what I know to be right? for some temporary reward. Mm. And how do I go from loving someone, let's say a partner, and I can identify with this so much, loving someone so much and wanting the best and intending the best, and yet because of my own wounds, I actually do this to them Mm -hmm. on a regular basis, maybe repeatedly even, because I'm not aware of my own shadow patterns showing up. And 
so Judas became a figure for me several years back where I started to have a real affection for Judas because I was like, poor Judas gets talked about as if he's this, that's all he was. Right. He was a betrayer. He was a terrible human. And like, I think there's so much more nuance to that Mm -hmm. and an invitation for us to integrate and Mm -hmm. to challenge our own conceptions of Mm ourselves. you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, even down to something as specific as how do we knowingly or unknowingly collude with the authorities when mm. they kill yes. people. Yes. Whether that be police yes. violence or state yes. state sanctioned murder. Exactly. We are always complicit. And I think mm. we are not able to handle that truth a lot of times. And um, we're always complicit in some way because we don't because we don't exist apart from the other. Mm-hmm. We are all one. And so that means that all of us need to navigate what does that mean about my complicitness in these things that are troubling mm-hmm. our societies and mm-hmm. actually ending in the deaths of real humans? Mm-hmm. And um, so accepting all and rejecting none and holding things in tension in that cruciform position mm-hmm. includes trying to think that way and examine our role mm-hmm. on a large scale. Yeah. And whether that's the, the kingdom of heaven or the beloved community or the Buddhist concept of the sanity we're born with, it's... It's like you said, self and other are the same. And when we're split internally, it's obvious we're psychotic, right? Mm -hmm. But when we're split, we're so used to being split among people groups and that being the norm that we don't realize that we're collectively psychotic. Mm. You know, like when when you look at marginalized communities, you see the collective psychosis of the people who created those Mm -hmm. communities. But we tend to instead look and see, well, there's an increased amount of violence or drug activity in this particular place. And when I, when I see a marginalized area that's suffering, Mm -hmm. I just think this exposes the consciousness of the people who created the split. Yes. The people who build the ghettos and who ghettoize the neighborhoods are the people in power. Mm -hmm. But it's easy to even go like, well, those are the people in power and not examine my role. Right. And so that's why like gentrification is such a thing that I've taken an interest in trying to understand because mm-hmm. as you know, neighborhoods move and shift, there's always a story in our country. Um, I can't speak to the specifics of other cultures, but I know in America, there's a, a very obvious pattern of mm-hmm. white flight and then white people moving back to the city and then moving back to the suburbs and then, you know, communities of color and marginalized, marginalized communities get moved back and forth mm-hmm. at the behest of people with more money and more privilege. And so I can be like black lives matter and put the black lives matter in my like sign in my yard and be participating in the oppression of right. black communities by buying a flipped house in a, previously all black neighborhood and driving up property taxes for people who have lived there for 40 years. Mm-hmm. That stuff matters. Yeah. And it's overwhelming because yeah, how do we examine our role at all times and all these things? It's tough, but I think we can, we can take adopt steps toward that, um, toward that type of integration. I, I mean, we have to, I, yeah. I think we must. Yeah. Yeah. And we both of course live here in Nashville and that's happening here as much as anywhere. Of course. I've ever seen. Oh yeah. It's, Maybe more it's, so. Mm-hmm. Yes. All the East Nashville liberals, we, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta reckon with our, our collective psychosis as much as anyone. Um, and I hear black people on, you know, in the anti-racist community online, you know, in the like thought space saying this all the time, 
but most, most, like Jesus said, what is it like, uh, you know, most people won't have the ears to hear. They'll turn away in trouble from the message, be troubled and walk away. And mm-hmm. most of Jesus' disciples did that. Like when he actually told them that he was going to die and willingly be put to death, most of the people who had been following him around, eating up his words, just left. They're like, this is not a way I want to go. Mm-hmm. I don't want to die. I don't want an ego death. I don't want that. You know, yeah. um, most of us don't. It's 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 difficult. So the Christ um, energy is always available to us, though. And I think we can access it more than we realize, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And sometimes there's so many ways that could look in a particular moment. I think at some point in our lives, we've scapegoated someone or been scapegoated. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jesus was also very much scapegoated and so i'm thinking about the child archetype and how um you know the powers that be and the domination systems wanted to kill him from the moment Mm -hmm. they realized he had been born Mm -hmm. you know and attempted to kill him multiple times um until they finally did Mm -hmm. at roughly age 33 yeah and so you know, where is the scapegoating energy in us? Who are we doing that to? And then who's doing that to us? And how do we work with that? And it just constantly brings up, you know, I guess as Bonhoeffer said, you know, living the questions um, was something that was important to him, not having answers, but like in this, working in this way constantly has us asking questions and trying to live into them and, and not resolve them intellectually um, mm. but to live into those in an embodied way that actually creates transformation for self and other almost sounds like a beloved community <laughs> or a kingdom thank you so much for joining us stay tuned for the next episode of Archetypical <laughs>